Hello and welcome to the Rules of Investing brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm Ali Selby and today's guest is passionate, she's motivated and truly one of the nicest people I've met in funds management in my years of covering this beat so far. In case you haven't guessed already, it's June Lu. She's the portfolio manager of the Tribeca Alpha Plus Fund. Junbei uses a blend of both a fundamental and quantitative investment process to identify long-term opportunities, but she also has a secret weapon in her back pocket. By short-selling stocks with weaker investment characteristics and reinvesting the proceeds in preferred long plays, the fund has been able to beat its benchmark not only over the past year, but in every period since its inception. In this episode today, June Bay will share her North Star for navigating volatile markets. We all need that right now. Her outlook on Aussie equity earnings, as well as some of her favourite stocks on both the long and short side today. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, click the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified every time we post an episode. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Okay, June Bay, I'm really excited for this chat today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. You've had a really inspirational journey in investment management. What are three rules you live by and that you believe our listeners should too when it comes to investing? Yeah, well, Ali, thank you very much for having me. And I think it's an incredible opportunity for me to speak to you about how to invest and, and the like. Um, look, three key things. I think number one is to um, do your homework and really understand what the business is. Um, you know what they do and their value proposition to its customers. Ultimately, um, you know, there, there needs to be a reason for the business to be in existence um, and, um, and how they consistently, um, you know, to be that reason every single day is very, very important. Um, number two, um, you know, management team for me, it's, um, it's incredibly important because um, look, it is people that make things happen. It's a people that come up with vision and it's a people to hire the right team, uh, the right executive to really execute on those dreams. So, um, you know, for us, when we look at the investment management team, will have to tick the box, um, you know, when you go through track record and everything else. Um, and the last one as an investor, look, you know, you already done your homework, you've done a, um, you know, management team and you work out what's important and it's a business you want to buy. And the next one is about um, discipline um, and um, not to be swayed by what everyone else is doing. This is this is when you start tapping into the behavioral finance. Um, this is when you start thinking about how can I, um, you know, fight against that herd mentality. Um, and when I think this is a great investment, and when everyone else don't think it is, um, you know, how can you build in? How can I build enough confidence to really position in them? Um, and uh, sometimes the example includes, you know, you may you may find something and market really won't like it for a very long time. Um, and how do you build more co- conviction? And um, and kind of it, it's related to the first couple of uh, couple of points that you uh, that you've done is that once you've done your homework, you understand what it is and just work out what you want to pay for it, and then you position in it as an investor. And uh, every time when this company reports, or you know when when there's um, you know uh, I guess uh, when there's new information coming out, like the res- results, um, and reassess. Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest thing we've learned over the years, what we've seen over the years is that behavioral bias is such a big thing um, for investors in, in, ulti- in ultimately determining whether they generate 
generating return. Um, and, um, you know, people, if they lost money, they felt, you know, I, I lost money, I can't, I have to hold on to it and everything else. Just remember, whenever there's new information, there's a news flow, there's, uh, um, you know, company results, um, reassess, just, you know, see if it confirms what you believe, what your prior belief is, um, and what you should do today. You know, if something is, uh, um, you know, uh, that you lost money on, and today you, you think about, you know, whether to sell or buy, um, most of people, people will tend to go, oh, I want to hold on to it because market's clearly wrong. But also ask yourself another question is, um, do you, um, would you put more money into it? Would you buy it today afresh if you didn't have any uh, this position before? Um, and a lot of time when it's no, it means you should sell it. So, you know, just every day is a fresh day uh, for an investor, um, you know, when you, when you assess whether something is a good opportunity. So <laughs> that's probably more than three points, but I can keep going. But these are the three things, key things that I think is very important for generating long-term returns. Mm. It's obviously been a really difficult environment for investors over the past few years. The vast majority have never navigated a market environment like this before. What's your northern star? What do you lean on or who do you lean on for guidance in today's volatile environment? I think ultimately there are many people in our career that we uh, we talk to um, and, um, you know, you can lean on many of them for their different perspectives. Um, everyone, you know, will have very different perspective of what things are. But ultimately it is yourself that you have to really truly believe in and have confidence in. Um, you know, looking at myself, I have over... I was calculating the other day, 22 years of investment experience. That's many decades of investment experience. Um, and there is so much I've learned. It's There's so much I've learned over these two decades. Uh, and that is something to lean on to. And, um, and then that is something that, you know, I can draw upon in terms of, uh, you know, experience and opinion and what I should do. Um, and ultimately, uh, as a, you know, long-term investor, as an investor for, you know, for, 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 uh, you know, any equity market, um, you know, we all know how, uh, how, uh, what our expertise is, which is the company, understanding the company and the share price is ultimate um, sort of, um, you know, volatile component of it. But over the long term, if a good company is doing well, share price will go higher. But in the short term, it's harder to predict. And that's when the, um, you know, volatility comes in and that's when the confidence issue crisis come in. But it just need to look deep enough to really, um, you know, understand that you've done enough work on the company and this is a time for you to actually position. Now, um, I just also want to add an Another point, being a portfolio manager, um, you know, one stock is very, you know, you, you draw upon your experience, all of that. Um, as a portfolio, uh, during volatile times, it's actually incredibly important just to keep on top of, um, you know, make sure it's not too volatile, make sure it's a portfolio that can sail through any market condition, um, you know, whether it's a growth market or, you know, um, you know, sort of value market or, um Risk off market, risk off market, bear bull. Um, just make sure portfolio is strong enough to, you know, to withstand any market shock. Um, because only when you do that, um, then you can take advantage um, of the market, volatile market. Otherwise, you know, if your portfolio is already quite volatile, and then you go, I want to buy more stock, and then become even more volatile. Then that's, that that doesn't that would then start challenge a lot of behavioral bias when you start, you know, trying to um, chasing more risk and and the like. I want to go more into the macro now. Mm. The RBA released documents recently thanks to a freedom of information request. The documents revealed that, according to internal modelling, the chance of an Australian recession could be as high as 65 to 80% over the next two years. Are you positioning for a recessionary outcome? 
uh, not for Australia. We actually believe that Australia will um, sail through this. Uh, we will see slowdown. We Even pro- though the RBA has said, you know, over the next two years, as high as 80% chance of a recession? Uh, yes. Um, I, my view is that um, often that, um, you know, a lot of macro um, specialists or economists and the like, they tend to be um, assume a lot of variables um, as current, you know, so if the variable is getting worse, so, you know, inflation is getting worse or and interest rates going higher and, um, you know, consumer activity getting slower, you know, they kind of just put that into modeling as continue as it is. Now, uh, we all know, um, um, you know, economy is very dynamic. Um, there's a lot of variable uh, at place. Just look at the share market, how it moves because of the news flow, because of things changing every single day and how people inter- inter- uh, interact up very, very um, very different. Um, and just look at RBA. Uh, two years ago, was it two years ago? I think two years ago, they said they would not put on, put up interest rate mm. for a very long time. And yet, you know, few, six months later, they started putting up interest rate every single month. So, you know, so to me, um, I don't put too much um, emphasis on what they say in the paper, uh, but clearly it's just a sign of currently things are slow. You know, it does look like inflation will be here a little bit longer. Interest rate might potentially go up another 25 basis points. Um, you know, Consumer will slow down because all these expensive mortgages to roll through. Um, but, you know, are we going to get to a recession? I don't think so. In the next 12 months, um, which we're already seeing early indications of, uh, is that, um, you know, first of all, consumer is holding reasonably well. Now, clearly, there's pockets of consumer will experience very tight conditions. Uh, lower tier consumer, we heard they already started uh, running through all the excess cash and the bank balances. Um, they are using the credit cards a little bit more um, and uh, they are trading down in some of the lower, um, you know, lower uh, retailer sort of space, what we have heard is trading down. Housing-related consumer is uh, consumer stock is already talking about, uh, you know, consumers a little bit slower because the turnover is, uh, housing turnover is a little bit slower and the house prices is, you know, is a little bit challenged for the time being. Um, but uh, but net-net, things are not slowing as much. Um, at the same time, we are now beginning to see, um, you know, the, the early projection of what the immigration might look like over the next couple of years. Um, you know, there's numbers ranging between 600,000 to 700,000 people uh, over the next two years coming to Australia as immigrant. Um, you know, pre-COVID, just as a comparison, pre-COVID, that number is 200,000. And in the last 12 to 18 or 12 months, we haven't really built anything because, you know, there's a product shortages and there's, um, you know, the builder sort of cha- labor yeah. shortage and then the builder sort of taking on too much work and sort of going bankrupt. And then, so, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, we'll have a severe shortage uh, of um, space to live. Um, you know, as a, you know, we're already seeing early symptom of it is rental market is going through the roof and it will continue to do so. Um, and, um, you know, and just imagine all these new uh, you know, immigration uh, immigrants coming through, you know, that will put really a, a quite a substantial lift into the rental market. And hence, we'll start to see the property market start to take off from here. Um, you know, clearly, we ha- if we have another 25 basis point raise, um, that might just be a little bit more volatile. But I'm talking about three months. Uh, we're not talking about anything longer than that. So, you know, our housing market stabilizing, our um, 
consumer is doing okay. We've got immigrants coming in. And when they come in, they don't just need place to live. They need to spend. They need to buy food. They need to buy JB Hi-Fi. <laughs> they need to buy TV. There's, there's a lot of things that will come with it. Um, but, you know, it's probably six months away, but it's not very far. And that is very positive for the Australian economy, uh, which is a very consumer-oriented economy. Secondly, China reopening. Yes, it's a little bit slow uh, compared to what people expected in January, but it is picking up very quickly compared to what what happened in like the, in the US or Australia where we went through reopening, we had the start stop for two years. Um, you know, China uh, is doing well. So, you know, and that just uh, in turn will drive demand for our commodities. Um, you know, commodity prices actually doing quite well at the moment. And, you know, we'd see that well supported and Australia really strong uh, beneficiary of that. And this not to mention that we've got the tourists coming in, tourism started to come through um, and students that is starting to come through. The th- thematic for the Australian economy is actually looking incredibly strong in the next one or two years um, you know while we actually at the moment very fixated on the short term but I think once you move past the next three months things are looking much much brighter. Just on that um, you spoke about the China economy the China reopening just then back at the end of the last year you you told us you were super bullish on the outlook for China I feel like that hasn't really played out as many expected do you feel like that theme has peaked? What's happened there? Mm. So um, uh, the, the, the theme actually played out a little bit too fast. <laughs> In January, we saw this massive rally across every reopening. Obviously, that was sentiment because, um, you know, global investors suddenly realised when China said reopened, they reopened. Um, they literally just let the, you know, COVID run through the economy and they just opened everything. Now, but since then, of course, there's always a bit of reality check, you know, because it does take time. Uh, in China... Most of people, um, when they when the lockdown was in place, they don't get government payments. So when the reopening take place, they don't actually just go out and spend money. <laughs> so there is a bit of pent up demand in terms of domestic travel and the like. But a lot of them actually trying to find a job. They so they don't have a labor issue. They won't have the inflation that we experience. So they try to find a job, and then the f- spending will flow on from there. So it's a little bit of delay on that front. But consumer spending is still very strong. Um, you know, obviously consensus. I think the latest number, April number, consensus was expecting uh, consumer spending of something like 20%, but they did 17. And that's still pretty good for, you know, for my take, because it's literally only four months from, you know, the date of reopening. So, you know, I think it's gathering momentum. Um, what the share price does is what share price does is sentiment. So it rallied aggressively. Now it's being sold off thinking, oh, it's a little bit slow. Um, and, uh, but you, the earning is definitely in the next one or two years is on the way up. So, you know, so that just simply means that the share price or share price or that reopening thematic is going to continue um, and you know in a way it's almost like a second chance for you to really reposition for some of those names um, if you look at the Australian um, you know landscape you know who can benefit from that clearly commodities one that's interesting um, obviously it's being sold off because you know people worry about all oh, this reopening and the like but we do see you know opportunity in those sort of space uh, I think previously we'll probably talk to the lithium and some of those names um, it was you know extremely um, uh, you know cheap at the time when, um, you know, when all their pessimism was building into it. Um, also, if you look at some of the other things, what's um, what could benefit is the travel agents, I think we talked to. Actually, travel agents have performed very well. Mm. Um, and uh, But the momentum is so strong because, you know, um, in China, uh, the in, uh, the within domestic travel, um, it's already something like 20% above uh, the pre-COVID level, domestic in China. Um, but their outbound is something still like less than 20% of you know, of the pre-COVID level international. Um, so, 
And uh, obviously, there's a visa delay, there's, um, you know, a bit of a backlog and a bottleneck to get through. And imagine that gets to, you know, COVID level or even half of COVID level, um, you know, Chinese consumer will be global. And uh, they used to account for quite a big, meaningful part of, a, you know, a lot of those travel agent volume and, um, and, and profitability. And uh, they're definitely coming back in the next six months. So for me, there's a, you know, just opportunity uh, to reposition or not reposition to actually buy into those names um, because I think next 12 months still it's going to be the key driver of the return. What are those names? Can you take us through a few examples? Sure. So in my view is that, you know, we talk to just follow on from that. The first one, like the travel agents. So we like Webjet. Uh, clearly Webjet just had a result and it's been incredible. Um, and uh, and I think they will uh, continue to be a, you know, very strong beneficiary uh, from the Asian travellers, um, you know, travel around the world. They're taking share as well. It's not just, you know, benefiting from thematic. The business itself is doing incredibly well. I think... Uh, the, the, the company's uh, comment on the result call was that, um, you know, they, they, they said that their growth is like, uh, it's like Porsche without brake. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it's incredible growth and very supportive. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, more than 20% growth for the next few years. It's very, very strong. And it's trading at less than 20 times. How about the miners? You, you spoke about miners as well. Where are you seeing opportunity in terms of that China reopening? Sure. So look, at the, all the miners has been sold off um, net there. Uh, we, uh, you know, look, uh, a month ago, we did see the opportunity in the lithium names because, you know, it was uh, the demand is there. Story hasn't changed. Uh, and uh, what's changed is people's fear about, oh, you know, what's the ultimate demand, whether there's a new uh, technology, whether that's going to, um, you know, dislodge the uh, need for lithium. And obviously that's been dispelled. And then we see increased amount of uh, uh, sort of M&A in this mm. space. Normally, this is a sign of a commodity bottoming, um, you know, like at the bottom of a commodity market. So when you start seeing M&A uh, taking place, because corporates are much longer term, and they understand these are precious resource, you need to take into place, uh, you know, them and uh, so we continue to like lithium we think it has a you know has, has a more runway to go um, and in terms of the majors we tend to go a little bit smaller um, you know just because majors you know you can buy BHP and the like they'll do okay um, but then if you go a little bit smaller you know when things do turn um, you know they will give you a lot more return um, and uh, you know at this point we liked um, you know names like Iluka um, you know it's again you know it's a very cheap way of playing that kind of reopening very leveraged to the china housing market um which went through horrible crisis in the last few years but so far this year we've seen a lot of government support for that space and you know maybe start stop but certainly it's getting uh, less worse than expected um i think that's a good place to be plus they have uh, um uh, the good rare earth um, deposit which mm. is a very strategic as well so um yeah so we like those names um i can name heaps of them but uh, <laughs> i think it, it is about being selective as well in this market rather than buy the whole thing and just buy the big ones um because the bigger cap will give you less um return opportunity um, and then they may be more swayed by the more macro sort of uncertainty and fear than the smaller names. Mm. So when it comes to lithium are you looking at I guess Pilbara Minerals or I, I don't know even further down I guess the market cap chain? Yeah, look, we tend to stick to the bigger ones and the ones that's profitable and producing and making money. Um, and, uh, you know, these are 
combined, um, the lithium players making billions of dollars, um, you know, just with the current strong prices, or actually prices started coming back. Um, and, um, you know, for us, Pilbara Mineral is um, is number one pick. Um, you know, my view is that it's the purest play. Um, yes, costs a little bit higher than the likes of IGO, but it gives a very good leverage to the high prices and they're making money. Um, you know, I wouldn't be going to the ones that's kind of got a deposit thinking about producing and, um, and also you know, location of the deposit is important as well because mm. we have seen with uh, Chile that they're trying to nationalise their uh, their lithium deposits. So, you know, so net net, I stick with the big one, the one that producing money. IGO is a good one. Um, it's um, a little bit less leverage, but it's uh, but it's a very low cost producer. So it's very quality deposit. Um, you know, we like that one as well, but uh, that's definitely stay with the big ones. We're only a few months away from another earnings season in Australia. What factors do you think will define the companies that surprise to the upside and what do you think will drag others down? I think net net with this reporting season um you know, as an investor, I want to see a little bit more downgrade. Um, but I think at this point, um, you know, based on recently, we just heard a whole round of company updates. Um, we only saw some, you know, more pointy and the consumer side of business sort of have a bit of downgrade. Um, but rest of the economy is kind of doing okay. Mm. Um, so, you know, Macquarie Conference clearly is normally that downgrade conference, the conference where we get reality check. Um, this year, we actually get net net upgrade. Mm. Um, it's just because the demand environment is holding up better than expected so this um i think this reporting season you know uh there will be what could potentially disappoint is really the demand environment perhaps in the next three months um you know things might fall off quite quickly uh you know consumer is going through that big you know high mortgages and that sort of pressure and the headline is going to be more negative as well in the news um, and uh, consumer in that sort of environment tend to spend less so you know potentially their top line might disappoint a little bit more on the cost front um, most of the company when they update it um, you know so that's kind of market is expecting strong cost um, sort of cost growth so I think the margin front uh, if anything um, for next year potentially there's a bit of uh, upside as in margin might be better because a lot of company in May they have a point to, um, you know, the cost, the pressure, a little bit more uh, labor availability. They've got, um, you know, the raw materials coming off a little bit uh, and just everything getting a little bit better. But it was still early stage in May when they, you know, talked about it. So I think by August, when they talk to her, maybe they'll have more definitive, more clarity uh, about that margin front. So I do think that for into 2022, the margin might, you know, potentially be upgraded while the top line might be downgraded. So net net, um, in, you know, the, the net profits sort of more, but might be more muted. Are there any companies where you feel like there could be margin pressure over the months ahead? And how are you capitalising on that in your short book? Look, I think uh, just in terms of the margin front, um, we do think that, um, you know, some of the uh, lower end consumer names will be uh, going through some challenging periods. Um, I think it's... Um, simply because retailers are fixed cost business. And when you have a shop, uh, you've got to open your door every single day and you've got to have similar sort of people standing there and then you have no people, well, Every day is a new day. Uh, you'd have no contracted people walking through the door. So um, these uh, these businesses, um, you know, when we compare some of the retailers' current margin to pre-COVID margin, some of them might just way too high. You know, clearly that just means that people 
was spending too much money um, and now heading into a slower environment, you are heading into an environment where you're going to have a bit of a um, headwind of that front. So we think things will get a little bit more challenging. Uh, what we have heard from recently from a, a super retailer, um, you know, they talked about the margin pressure, a little bit higher cost and, you know, demand is very strong, but, you know, things are coming off a little bit. And if the demand does start to fall away and these other businesses are going to um, have more challenging reporting season, I think. Mm. So are you capitalising on that? Are you shorting Super Retail Group then? Yeah, so we do have a short position in the Super Retail Group. Um, it's just simply because it's over-trading um, and it's done very well relative to some of other retailers. Um, and um, and you know, and look at the earnings just a little bit too high at this point. Um, but, you know, but, you know, when you look at through uh, the market, uh, the retail market, we, we are in a few other retailers, which is done incredibly well, um, the likes of LaVisa. Um, you know, yes, retail environment is slowing down, but we always have this preference of wanting to have um uh, retailer that are not mature, that growing, that is growing. Um, you know, with La Visa, they have, you know, markets uh, acro- around the world. Um, and, um, you know, it's about store rollout, every store store you rolled out, there's a maturity profile. So all of that will drive your growth. Um, so rather than just waiting for consumer to come through and hopefully consumer will spend a little bit more every year. So for this company, I just think it's a, it's got an incredible runway ahead. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, but we just tend to like to stick with um, some of the you know growth and more um, quality end of the retailer for this sort of environment. And you want to be younger consumer, um, just because they're kind of living at home, their parents are paying for the mortgages and, uh, and then they just go and spend their money. Um, so, but, uh, but, you know, net, net, we think, you know, in this environment, you've got to be a bit more selective with which one to be in. Mm, how about in tech? We've really seen a run up in a lot of those, I guess, profitless mm. tech stocks since the beginning of the year. Are you finding shorting opportunities within that area? Look, I think with the profitless ones, um, you know, it's a lot of those profitless tech, um, it, they're becoming very, very small. Uh, so for us, it's, um, you know, little bit harder to make it stack up uh, just simply because when you run a short book um, you know you need to look at how uh, crowded they are as in how many people are shorting those stocks and uh, you want to look at how um, you know how you know how, how big is that company? Um, because most of the profitless ones has done horribly and then their market cap is very small. So, mm-hmm. and then can I build big enough position to make a difference? Um, so then there we don't have, we used to have a lot of shorts in that those sort of space and they have done very well for us on the, as a short book. Um, but many of them we have since closed, closed as in, you know, we took profit um, just because, you know, net, 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 the potential upside return is very small. Um, but looking across the tech sector, we actually think there's a, you know, a lot of profitable ones. Um, are actually doing really, really well. Um, actually, now coming back, you're talking about the not profitable tech. Um, I hope you don't include zero in one of them. <laughs> it's one of our top holding. Um, you know, so zero is a very different story. Um, you know, we actually follow this company for many years and we'll be invested in this company for many years. Um, you know, for this business, uh, you know, the execution's been um, incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the addressable market and the runway um, is, um, you know, is, is enormous. And now that with the focus on... Uh, cash flow and you know profitability I think it's um it's it's got a lot longer long one long way to run Mm. I want to talk yeah I saw that zero was one of your top holdings Mm. you've also got stocks like A2 Milk, NextDC, Macquarie Group, realestate.com, Technology One, Pilbara Minerals and Treasury Wines a lot of those businesses are names that would have benefited in a low rate environment do you have a unique perspective on those stocks? I think um, 
whether it's a unique perspective, so we are very close to those companies um, and we tend to buy them uh, when other people worry about those companies. The reason they're sitting in the top positions is because 12 months ago, no one wanted to buy any of them. Um, you know, we picked up, we increased our zero holding significantly um, uh, in the last probably last eight months or so, share price for us, buy price was $80. And clearly it went very low. And uh, we just keep building our position. You know, we don't, so this is our experience is that you don't get set in one day, kind of just waiting for the share price to come to you. And we build a, a very decent position. So by the time uh, we know the result will be quite reasonable, um, you know, we have a very reasonable position. Um, it's probably our top holdings now um, uh, as, as zero. Um, same as Treasury Wine, I think, you know, we built that position years ago ago when they start having issues with tariff. Um, you know, China put tariff and things when share price went close to $8. Um, and then we just held them because market market initially recognize the value very quickly. And then they uh, lose faith thinking, oh, it might take longer. And then eventually market gets that gets there. So in the last 12 months, it's been an incredible performer. Um, and looking through a few others, look, realestate.com, look, we had a very tiny position when the result came uh, in February. And, um, you know, and no one wanted to buy those companies because they worry about the listing turning negative and everything else. And we have found that, that if we just take a slightly longer term view, um, i.e six months, we know 2024, this company, back end of 2024, it will have more than 20% growth. Um, it's been the top quality company in the Australian market. Um, you know, we don't need an immediate catalyst, we can just position them. So, you know, so that's what we do, you know, I would say 20-30% of our portfolio, we will position in companies a um, little bit ahead of the market, maybe three months ahead. Um, but that's how, um, you know, when it does, when we do get it right, um, well, uh, when it does come through, it will ensure our consistent outperformance. Um, you know, A2 clearly is the one that has uh, lagged a little bit. Uh, but our view is that, um, you know, market is being very short term uh, at the moment on the student uh, well on the Daigo channel and that is to come. Mm, I really love that contrarian idea of investing when there's blood in the streets, investing when no one else wants mm -hmm. to buy a certain type of stock or a sector. Where do you see the most blood in the streets right now? Where are you most excited about the opportunity? I think, you know, it's instead of saying, uh, looking at as top down, saying which sector it might be in, um, I actually think it's really stock by stock. Um, there's a lot of blood in a lot of stocks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, A2 is the one that we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, or every fundamental is suggesting is doing really well. Um, and um, and then it's on a strong balance sheet. It's uh, well, strong balance sheet. It's got almost like $900 million of uh, um, cash sitting on the balance sheet. Very rare. Uh, it's got a brand. Uh, it's doing well. So next next 24 uh, next 12 to 24 month is going to grow incredibly one of the top growth company um, and uh, but yet no one wants to look at it uh, so because near turn oh there might be a bit of softness and Daigo channels not coming back so these are the names that um, you know we would start we will have a big position in because you know what market will turn very quickly um, and it's just their reference points uh, in today's world share market works in three months um, they look to three months and three months so um, you know it's the February result after that it's a Macquarie conference after that it's August results so and market just can't look past it so as a you know strategic investor and agile investor we you know we just take longer term view and understand where they sit and we're happy to wear the short-term weakness of the company and positioning them and by the time um, you know everyone else noticed uh, it's 20% later or 30% later so that's um, you know this market is full of them because people just fall out of love with all these businesses or fall into love with a lot of those businesses 
which we then can go on the other side. Are there any other stocks other than AT Milk, maybe a recent position that you've just invested in? There's quite a few little, little stocks. So recently we started positioning in them. Um, you know, one is uh, uh, Jumbo Interactive. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of it. Uh, so it is essentially reseller of um, the online lottery, like, uh, online lottery, um, and um, you know the share price has gone through um, you know pretty tough time in the last few well not last few years last few months when the lottery um, you know run is uh, is not doing great. Uh, the company is not expensive. Um, you know if you compare that performance to uh, the um, the lottery corp where they have the offline business and some of the online business. Um, um, you know, it's just a compl- stark contrarian, as uh, a stark difference. So to us, that is, um, you know, that represents a very interesting opportunity. Uh, when the lottery run started turning the other side, um, you know, this company not only will grow um, with the volume and it will grow with the price as well. Recently started reinitiating uh, some of the price increases through um, this p- company through the you know, through the different lottery cycle, probably run, grows at about um, 15%, 14, 15%. Um, it's quite incredible. It does have a big contract, obviously, with the lottery call. But, um, you know, my view is that it's also developing the other part of the business um, that is also very lucrative. So it's a very interesting small cap or even, you know, in the micro space. Um, but that's something that we, you know, building position in because you want to buy them when no one wants to buy them, when lottery is not doing great. And that's when you look at some of those names. I want to touch on something that you said before about behavioural biases. How important is it for individual investors themselves to recognise, I guess, their own behavioural biases that they may have every day when investing? Behavioural bias is probably one of the biggest things any investor will experience. Um, How do you recognise that? Um, Very simple. um, uh, When you really feel like doing something, (laughs) when you feel the urge of doing something, um, and uh, because the share price is going higher, lower, and directionally you want to go the same way, it's just to take a breath, um, step back, and then write down the reasons of why you want to do it. Um, And, um, you know, from... From uh, day to day, that reason might change because of how you feel, and that's behavioral bias. Um, and based on the you know the share price direction, it might change how you feel because that's behavioral bias. So it's all about being rational. Um, you know, when you know something very well, it's more likely you'll be more rational. But if you don't know something very well, you tend to chase um, where the share price is going because you think everyone else knows better than what you know because you don't really know as much. Um, so, yeah, so it's actually very simple. Know the, know the investment very well. Know the company very well. Um, you know, if you get to know the manager, it'll be great. Um, but, you know, things need to tick more box for you. And you ha- then you have the confidence to say, look, I know exactly where this is going. Um, share price down, I'm going to buy more of it. Um, someone gave me this example, or is it the, from one of the book? Is that, um, you know, one of the uh, people used to say, oh, it's crazy. You know, when you go to a retail shop when uh, clothes go on sale 20 percent people be rushing to the store and buy them um, but in share market when things go down 20 percent people actually step away and people want to sell it because the fear they fear they don't know or everyone knows more than what they do so you know it's actually exact that the right example is that just be rational and um, you know the greatest opportunity is always made when everyone's fearful remember all these sell-offs um, the pandemic and mm. everything else the greatest return the following couple of years in the share market is because recognizing that fear uh, was irrational. Um, share market, it's an instrument that provides you with so much flexibility to generate these sort of outsized returns um, and to profit from, you know, the behavioral bias that everyone else have. So, you know, utilize that. How do you think that emotional intelligence piece 
plays into your relationships with company management? Um, it's always very helpful to be, um, you know, personable and be respectful in a way. Um, you know, I've seen you know, over the many, many years, sometimes investors lose touch um, and uh, thinking they become very important and the like and small companies would don't want to talk to them. Um, for me, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, I just think it's incredible, what do you call it, a, like incredible um, opportunity for me to meet some of those entrepreneurs or, you know, people that have run those incredibly successful businesses. It's an honour to, to be in the room, same room as them. And uh, every meeting I go to, I learn something from them every single meeting. Um, and um, and whatever I learn, it becomes p- part of my knowledge base. Uh, and then I can help to share with others. So, you know, so I think understanding it's a partnership. Uh, and uh, and then we are people, um, you know, to be able to, um, you know, on a, um, you know, speaking terms, <laughs> um, instead of only see them twice a year or, you know, once a year through across the table asking lists of questions. I think it's much nicer where, you know, you can go out and do side tours and, you know, uh, meet other managements and executives and, um, you know, talk to them after work about, you know, different various things. It's much easier to uh, just to help to understand um, where, how everything falls into places. Mm. Who do you think is the best CEO in Australia? I'm really interested to see who you think. You've obviously been working in investment management for over two decades. Over that period, who's impressed you the most? Look, I think um, the number one I would say is uh, Richard for uh, from JB Hi-Fi, uh, Richard Utrus from JB Hi-Fi, actually. Uh, when he first took JB Hi-Fi from private business, actually he was running that business for um, for many years before he took it to uh, to the market uh, with Macquarie. And, uh, and he has done incredibly well by uh, driving that small electronic retailer into something that's national as well as, uh, you know, into many categories. Um, and uh, he fought against many, headwinds when you know when the company was going listed remember the business 50% of the earning was coming from CDs um, you know remember oh the CDs God. I know and uh, I can't imagine that's not that long ago and then he managed to grow into everything else every category he adds he became dominant player in those new categories um, you know so I just think he's done an incredible job in doing so and you know he's really driven the the change in the consumer electronics landscape. And today, you know, JB Hi-Fi is still probably one, uh, the, well, not probably, it still is the top uh, player in the Australian market, the dominant player, you know, and I think that's uh, that's really thanks to the team then and um, and also, yeah, it's, it's strategy to really drive it there. Mm. Are there any other management teams you want to call out? Yeah, like, absolutely. Look, I, I, I do want to say that there's a lot of great management teams. And right now, this one comes topical. Is uh, They, you know, reported uh, Technology One. Uh, you know, I think the management team just be so amazing that every year it's been the same uh, story. It's about driving, um, you know, consistent growth with the exist new clients, but consistent growth about within client te- uh, cli- existing clients, uh, about the continuous push into the UK market, very focused. And, uh, you know, some of the market, UK market took... you know, quite quite many years, ten years, but still, um, now that you start seeing uh, incredible pickup in that market, almost reaching an inflection point, and yet you talk to the company, they still saying, "Oh, look, we're targeting, um, you know, sort of ten fifteen percent growth. Uh, we're looking at margin growth of, you know, one 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 and a half percent." It's the same story for so long, and they continuously uh, deliver to those sort of targets and outperform. So, to me, these are very good management teams. Um, you know. Don't need to 
go after those shiny, um, exciting things because normally those things don't last and they require a lot of investment. Um, you know, it's important to stick to what you know and do it really well. Mm. Here at Livewire, we don't like to take ourselves too seriously. So we'd love to finish off the podcast today with three questions that we always ask our guests. I should add that we don't recommend that listeners act on any of these answers. It's just a thought experiment, a little bit of fun. Okay, so the first question is, what is the one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? It's the main thing is that people keep waiting for uh, the market to crash. (laughs) I think I know a lot of investors are waiting for the market to fall um, so that they can, you know, position and buy everything else. Um, You know, the current market, if you look at the performance of last six months, it's all defensives. Uh, Woolworth are getting more expensive. uh, Transurban's getting more expensive. Um, And um, why? Because there's really lack of alternative and people are worried about what might happen or what might come. And I think they're getting it very wrong. Next 12 months, things will look much better. Economic condition will absolutely improve, um, you know, in the, in the next 12 months, 2024. Um, and, um, you know, our inflation is already hitting, um, you know, it's already started heading down. If we US market is anything to follow that, you know, we'll continue to see that softening trend. Interest rate may be a little bit higher, but we absolutely you know, very close to the peak than it is to the bottom. So, you know, all of that together, I think investors getting it wrong. I think the Australian market is looking very strong. Uh, the defensive, um, they are just way too crowded and too expensive. Um, if anything, people should be taking profit in those names and buying some of the companies we were talking to those. Um, and that's, these are the ones that will generate a lot of return next year. Mm, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss that really shaped your investing career? What happened and what was the lesson that you learned from that? Yeah, look, I think uh, let's talk to Big Win because that's, uh, that's that's more exciting. <laughs> uh, look, you know, actually before we get to Big Win, so loss. Look, in terms of loss, you make mistakes all the time uh, as an investor. Um, and, um, you know, the people do quote, um, you know, some probability of something like, you know, most of analysts get something like 55% times right and 45% times wrong. Um, you know, we look at the statistic, we get a little bit higher than that, not a little bit, we get much higher than that, but still we get things wrong um the challenge is that when things get wrong go wrong what do you do with it and that's what ultimately um will contribute or detract from your performance um you know and it's about you know being very consistent very rational um you know admit if you made a mistake well let's move on it's about what this stock will do tomorrow it's not about what it did yesterday um to determine your buy and sell or hold decisions so um so yeah so these things happen all the time and the lesson learned is just consistently learning from what did I go, what what was my mistake and where, what was um, unexpected information? Mm. And then I need to move from there. Is now, there a stock that comes to mind where you feel like, oh, I really made a mistake there? Look, I, early in my career, um, you know, talk, going back to the uh, JB Hi-Fi story, I think I always remember that um, I was a, you know, sales site analyst and, you know, my first, I think I just started as a sales site analyst. My first big initiation research report was on Strathfield. And I don't know if you remember, it's like a Strathfield car radio. So back then it has a big market share, a bit like JB Hi-Fi. That's the same year as when JB Hi-Fi listed. And uh, Strathfield, at the time, they sell car radio, a lot of car radio. Remember those days, people used to get car radio. And then another part of the business is uh, mobile phones, you know, with Optus and they have a big contract. And then they sell some consumer electronics, but, you know, half of it is like car radio. And, uh, but, but it is being compared to JB Hi-Fi where half of its business is CDs. And so it's kind of similar. And the other half in consumer electronics. I remember initiating on this company going, well, because I was a 
what do they call a desktop analyst at the time. I didn't really go out and visit the store or anything else. So I had a look at these two com- companies. I just looked at it going, okay, they're both going to grow 15% next year and because the store roll out and all of that. And um, But JB Hi-Fi trading on 18 times at the time and this one trading on 10. You know, there's too much of a, you know, uh, valuation differential, um, Strathfield is a buy. Uh, and, um, you know, it all makes sense on paper. And this is one of the biggest mistakes an investor can make is they just, you know, you just look at everything on paper. Um, and I, I just remember Richard came over to me. He's like, have you been to their store? Um, so when I did go to their store, um, I, I was horrified. <laughs> it's not something that I would feel exciting going to a store um, and spend a lot of money on. Uh, car radio, I didn't even have a car at the time. So, you know, it's it's really, um, and that, that company did I think it did well for six months because a lot of investors were on the same boat you know just very short focus on the short term and then you go oh it's all cheap and everything else and then six months later when Australian consumer sort of took a bit of a dive um that was gone. That business just under significant amount of pressure, um, and that was that was almost the end of the story. So um, you know, so it's it it really teaches you to really focus on um, ju- not just what you see in front of you on the in the number on the paper. Uh, it's about get to the business, understand this value proposition, understand the company management, see what it looks like, and um, touch and feel, and that sort of forms your investment outcome. Is there a, a story of a big win that you want to call out? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of wins. Uh, but the big win is, um, you know, I would name one is that we touched on before is Treasury wine. Um, you know, this is the one that we really went against the market in a very public way as well. Um, you know, China was talking two years ago when China talking about uh, tariff, increasing tariff and things on Australian wine. Share price really touched, uh, you know, new lows. And uh, and that's just the, around the same time when we were presenting at the Song conference and you know we 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 stick to you know our conviction and at the song conference we said this is a buy um you know clearly i remember two days before (laughs) two days before uh the song conference i was about to give the speech um you know, there was terrible news flow. It was really stressful. Um, and, uh, you know, about China putting this tariff and all of these things. Um, but you know what? My investment case was not hinged upon the Chinese tariff. Uh, that's the what market knows. And I'm already pressing in. That's why share price is so low. So, you know, so we went a public way and uh, it paid off to us very, very quickly. Um, so what it does is just reinforces, um, you know, our investment process, right? It's stick to what you know and don't get swayed by where the share price is going. This is my favourite question of the podcast now. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, what company would that be and why? Okay, I will put my money in CSL. I think the business is, it's an incredible business, um, very you know, a very quality business. Uh, it's going to, um, you know, grow double digit for the next three to five years. Um, you know, there's a strong proposition for its business model. Um, you know, recent acquisition of buy for it just giving you another leg of growth. So um, incredible management team. Uh, yeah, it's um, one of the most successful Australian story. And uh, I think it will continue to be so. Okay, Jimba, I've really enjoyed this chat today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Ali. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. That's it for me. Next week, you'll be guided by the smooth vocals of David Thornton and his guest, but I won't give away the surprise on that one. I hope you learned as much as I did from that podcast. Thanks again for taking the time to listen.